This is Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Primal Screen is about movies, from the ones on the big screen to the ones you stream. Hope you enjoy the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. To Primal Screen, a triple R film criticism show and podcast, or a show about the uh, things you watch everywhere. This is the Primal Screen Halloween special. I am your host, petrifying Paul Anthony Nelson, and I am broadcasting from another place, like a vampire who hasn't been invited invited inside, <laughs> away from the studio. We're broadcasting safely, surrounded by cloves of garlic and crucifixes. Are my ride or die horror hounds from hell, evil Emma Westwood? <laughs> Emma Westwolf, Emma Witchwood. You could have gone for so many, but evil, yeah. I evil said, Emma Dilemma. Try that, said, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I had I said evil, but I actually had eerie written down. Eerie Emma Westwood. Yeah, I'm probably more eerie than evil. Mm. <laughs> I think you're right. <laughs> Uriam Westwood. And, I mean, what else? Uh, scary, spooky, but satanic Sally Christie. <laughs> One time you introduced me as um, her satanic majesty, which I, I did. Just, that's, that's my favourite. That's my favourite. <laughs> never been top. No, I, I worship you as her satanic majesty, yeah. Borrowing, <laughs> borrowing a, a, something from the Rolling Stones. So as it's the most wonderful time of the year, we've decided to celebrate All Hallows' Eve by shining our jack-o'-lantern upon a triple feature of thrilling threequels that you can program in your own home. We'll follow George C. Scott down some familiar dark Georgetown steps to chase a demonic murderer in William Peter Blatty's The Exorcist Three. Then we'll get very seasonal and the uh, short silver shamrock theme stuck in our heads <laughs> as Tom ever <laughs> primal screen on halloween halloween uh, <laughs> tune in kids um as Tom Atkins tries to stop a toy company from wreaking ancient carnage in Tommy Lee Wallace's halloween 3 season of the witch and finally, we'll have our last painful reminder of living in lockdown as a small group of scientists and soldiers find they just can't get along, let alone know what to do with all the dang zombies in George A. Romero's apocalyptic classic, Day of the Dead. Also, as you listen to us chatting about these films, please feel free to hit us up on our social media channels and leave a comment. Just search for Primal Screen on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Now, before we launch, I thought it was an appropriate time to share some sort of sad news. Um, so you might have noticed, uh, constant listeners, that I've taken the last six weeks of this show off. Well, maybe you haven't noticed. Maybe, <laughs> maybe you've not missed it. Um, but I've taken the last six weeks of this show off, um, taking a backseat as my co-host Flick Ford and an exciting breed of hosts, old and new, steer this show into a new era. And I'll be taking the next six weeks off as well. As somebody once said, all good things must come to an end. And after three years on air as co-anchor of Triple R's flagship film program, first the final season of Plato's Cave and then these first two seasons of Primal Screen, I've decided to hang up the boots and let the next generation take up the mantle. I'll be appearing one last time this year uh, for our Best Films of the Year countdown because I can't resist a top 10, as my co-hosts well know. Uh, that's in December. I'll be on that show. But otherwise, this will be my final show as the host of Primal Screen. And other than my co-pilot flick, who I'll be spending that December show with, I couldn't think of two other more perfect people to see my tenure out with than you, uh, uh, Sally and Emma, and also uh, Killer Carl Chapman there uh, pushing the slides and dials behind the panel. So thank you all for joining me tonight on this show. I'll say more of, an, of a farewell on that show later this year, but I thought I'd just flag it with you, constant listeners, in case you're wondering where I've been and will be at over these last few months. So thank you. 
You'll be back, Paul, because technically Emma and I have both left too. And <laughs> <we are. laughs> exactly. That's what I was thinking. Not only that, we're doing a horror show and you'll be back. Yeah, you'll be back. <laughs> you'll be back. You can't keep a good ghoul down. Yep, not, just, not just once, not just twice, but three Thrice. times. Yes. Excellent segue, <laughs> Emma. This is why you're a pro. So ever since George Melies' 1904 short, Faust and Marguerite, his follow-up to his short of the previous year, The Damnation of Faust, horror films and filmmakers have been springing sequels. And ever since 1920s The Gollum, How He Came Into the World, closed out Paul Wegener and Carl Bose's Gollum trilogy, horror films have been spawning second sequels, or threequels, as they've become known, or, ski- or squeakquels, if you're a 20th century Fox marketing exec looking to uh, add <laughs> title your latest Alvin and the Chipmunks picture. <laughs> So even though we feel so inundated with sequels, uh, inundated with sequels nowadays, horror threequels have been a cinematic staple with us for over a hundred years now, becoming incredibly popular during the 1930s due to Universal Pictures' stable of famous monsters, with films like *Son of Frankenstein*, *Son of Dracula*, *The Invisible Woman*, and *The Mummy's Tomb* representing each of the monsters' second spin-offs. But the horror threequel arguably became most popular during the 1980s when kids who couldn't see slasher and creature features in cinemas started renting them on VHS, making a killing for movie studios and enabling them to reanimate their iconic killers time and time again to meet a seemingly inexhaustible demand. And in latter years, companies like Paramount Pictures and Lionsgate found favour in bringing sequels out every Halloween, meaning for a decade between them we were getting a new Saw or Paranormal Activity every October. So, Sal, Emma, what were your thoughts on the horror threequels, your most formative or beloved? I think that the ones that we've picked to look at tonight are some of the best. Um, the one that kind of, when I think of threequels, I think of Army of Darkness. From, yeah. I, I hate it. <laughs> I just hate it. I hate it so much. I believe my least favourite. This of might be a controversial. I just... I can't There's do the it. people who love it and the people who hate it. It really, I don't know, that this is from obviously the Evil Dead um, trilogy. Uh, not obviously, because it's called the Army of Time. Yeah, that's true, <laughs> not obviously. But it, for me, that, that, that prequel really ruined that character of Ash for me. It took him in a totally different direction, which I didn't love. And it, that, that um, it, What's the the new show? It's Ash versus the, oh, Evil, Ash versus Dead. the Evil Dead. That kind yeah. of Ash is in Ash versus the Evil Dead, which mm. is a very different character to um, the first two films. And yeah, kind of for me when I think of threequels, that's the first one that pops in my mind. <laughs> really, it's, it's always been my least favorite too. It's yeah. those people that either you either love the horror, horror or love the comedy. And the reason I think a lot of people gravitate towards Evil Dead Two is because it's the equal. It's a nice, yeah. It's a really beautiful combination of both. And um, I'm all about the first. Yeah, I am as well. Me Paul. too. Yep. I'm all about the first. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I so. think that I think that what Sally was saying that's uh, how the, the 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 idea of this franchise, the horror franchise, you can either go, it can either go off in a direction that you like mm-hmm. or not, and often it's not the same direction as the first film, or the second film will try and replicate the first film, and then you get some. You know, weird baddie shit. That, you like know, interesting, the like good stuff. Yeah, that comes out <laughs> yeah. from a, a threequel or uh, something else. You're never in kind of, kind of entirely sure. So it's 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 the excitement of the third film of where is the film third film going to go? That's why I don't. I, is that why we're doing that, Paul? This tonight, Paul? I felt that. <laughs> That was why, why we doing, we're doing it. Yeah, why are we doing this happening? <laughs> well, to me, essentially, it was my third. I guess. Well, originally, I thought it was my third Halloween show. So I thought a third Halloween show. Let's talk about. It's all about and, you, Paul. Tonight, all about me. All about you. And then I realised that my last, I think, October Primal Screen, <laughs> we just reviewed movies. I think you did your John Waters interview. That in. I think I did too. Actually, yeah, yeah. yeah it was, Joker, polyester, and John Waters. So, not really a Halloween episode, but kind of. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I, I I find the threequel really interesting because you know so many films. And you're right, Emma. You're, you're on a good point. Like they're either a corrective, like something like the second sequel went off the rails, like one we're about to talk yeah. about. The series we're about to talk about tonight, and the and the third sequel. You know, the the, the third film brings it back on message, or <clears throat> or like you said with. Another one of the films we're talking about tonight where the second film tries to emulate the first and the third film goes in a completely different direction. 
And then you've got the the ones that feel, whether they were or not, built like a trilogy. Like mm-hmm. you've kind of got first stage, second stage, third stage. And I've only just realised this. We're talking about each one of those three examples tonight. Yeah, we are, definitely. Mm. Mm. Yeah, and interesting. I didn't think of it I, that way. Because <laughs> there's two, cause two kinds of watch recently, Psycho 3, which is the bonkers version, which is... Psycho Two is a very good. It was an, is a very very good follow up to the first film, and the third one, Anthony Perkins takes over and just turns it into bonkers. Like he confuses a nun for for Janet Lee, and <laughs> Jeff Fahey is in it for some reason, and he's really pervy and knocking off people in, and it's super R rated. Very <laughs> so that's one example. And then recently we watched um, the Omen trilogy, and that's the that's oh. the one that feels like stages. It's like we have a yeah. Damien as a kid, Damien mm-hmm. as a teenager, and then we get Sam Neill as Damien as an adult as, you know, he's trying to finally take over the world. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, and there's an anticipation with each of those things. Like sometimes it's really fun to see a filmmaker, you know, come on board and sort of get things back, like Wes Craven tried to do with Nightmare on Elm Street. Like, you know, like I think Dream Warriors was Wes's attempt to kind of get it more on the message of the first film, even though I like I like number two better. See, I don't. I love Dream Warriors. Dream Warriors is great. Mm. I, I don't know. I like the first four Nightmare on Elm Street songs. Agreed. Yep. Yeah. I like People I underestimate four all yeah, the time. Number four was my favourite for a really long time when I was a I think there was tucker. this um, with the Nightmare on Elm Streets, though, there was this idea of the kind of the gag lines and the mm-hmm. the dreams became comical, the crazy dreams, rather than that really nightmarish dream feel, which mm. was established in the first film. It, yeah, it's interesting that because when I was – I'm not a huge fan of the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise now. Um, don't dislike it, but certainly don't love it and it's for that reason like the mm. the first one is incredible but that um the whole you know freddy waiting to do is you know it's prime time bitch and yeah 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 stuff. see like, and eh. that all came into it in eh. number 3 <laughs> the wise cracking the son of a thousand yeah. bastards thing which mm. is ridiculous mythology they didn't need so yeah <laughs> some examples were a third sequel like where a third film can completely derail the whole thing even though that was possibly intended to bring it back on message, which is really interesting. Mm. Um, then there's other times like <clears throat> we're talking about bonkers. Is there a number three more bonkers than Howling 3, the marsupials? <laughs> uh, <laughs> Australia's own Philip Mora. Philip Probably Mora. not. Yeah. I'm, I'm crazy. And even crazy that it's Philip Mora that was doing mm. it, you know. <laughs> um, but, Yeah. Yeah, exactly, bonkers. There's some, what about, do you feel like there's any Godfather 2s in here where the second film is better than the first film? Oh, so steering away from threequels into is the second film better than the first? I'm just asking before we get right into it. Sure. Um, I'm just breaking the mould here. I'm going to really quickly move to Christmas, but Home Alone 2 is better than the first (laughs) one. Oh, my God. And that's a horror movie. I hate movie. that movie so much. <laughs> that's a horror movie. No, no, yeah, Paul. Donald Trump's in it. It's a horror yeah, movie. Paul, I'm, I actually have an agenda here because yeah, arguably. <laughs> are you going to pimp your book again? Exactly. Yeah. The Bride of Frankenstein is arguably a better film I, than the first film. I disagree. Mm. I'm a Frankenstein guy. You're the Frankenstein kind of guy? Yeah. Oh, you know, I, lo- I love Bride. Bride is an awesome sequel. Yeah, and 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 a just dessert uh, subject for for a book written by a brilliant uh, one or two I brilliant. Haven't, film I haven't writers. written it. People like Sally Christie's here beside me has written it. I've edited it and put it. You've together. edited it, so, and, yeah. and also uh, Primal Scream alumni Stephen A. Russell as well as one of the other writers, I believe. Yes, he is exactly. And Therese Howard. Cerise Howard is yes. too. Cerise Howard has made some very interesting parallels between Czech film and Bride of Frankenstein. And only Cerise Howard could. Yeah. <laughs> that doesn't sound like Cerise at all. But anyway, yes, um, I digress. Let's get back <laughs> onto the third And where films. is Bride of Frankenstein, your, your, uh, the book you edited, available from before we segue into it? Oh, it's not movie. available yet. Let, let, let me finish editing it and then I'll, <laughs> I'll come back onto the show next year for Halloween. We'll talk about Bride of Frankenstein. We'll talk about universal monster movies. That's what we'll do. <laughs> Re-release sizzle. All right, listeners. Are we, are we ready to jump into some threequels? I think so. Yes. Join us for the first threequel of the evening. What are these? 
are they? What's in them? Father Dyer's entire blood supply. What? All of his blood? And not a drop of it spilled. All neat. There's not even a smudge on the jars. There's only the writing in his blood. Writing? On the wall. The Exorcist 3 from 1990 was the second and final feature film written and directed by William Peter Blatty, based on his own novel, Legion. Blatty, of course, authored the original novel of The Exorcist that William Friedkin's 1973 classic was based on, and Blatty considered this film and the novel of Legion the true sequels to his Exorcist story, not a certain <clears throat> heretic who shall remain, remain nameless. Set some 15 years after Father Damien Karras gave his life to save demonically possessed girl Regan McNeil, Lieutenant Kinderman, played here by George C. Scott, meets his pal Father Dyer, played by Ed Flanders, every year on the anniversary of this tragedy that changed both of their lives. But this year, something's different. People across Georgetown are being murdered in astoundingly horrifying ways, bearing the signature of a notorious serial murderer known as the Gemini Killer. Except the Gemini Killer was executed 15 years earlier. What's more, Kinderman's investigation leads to a psychiatric hospital where an unnamed patient seems to look and sound disturbingly like the late Father Karras. It looks like the devil went down to Georgetown and he's looking for a soul to steal. Sally, as our resident expert on the representation of Satan in cinema, <laughs> was Bloody's attempt to repossess the Exorcist franchise a successful one? Oh, it's How do you follow the Exorcist? That it's such a difficult task to do. But I genuinely really love The Exorcist 3. Um, I think it's an incredible film and there's some really amazing, scary stuff that's going on in this film. Um, I know with the first Exorcist that a lot of people, you know, still find it after however many years really petrifying. And, yeah, I, I think that carries over into this film to a certain extent. But it does especially towards the end of the film, feel a bit choppy. Um, I think that was definitely studio interference there and um, not William Peter Blatty's sort of vision for the film. And what it was released in 1990, so it's kind of we're looking at the end of the satanic panic era in America and I think we can really see why the studio kind of wanted to interfere with the um, – with. Blatty's original vision for the film, which was looking sort of more at the Gemini killer, more at his crimes, having sort of more insight into those and more, um, you know, screen time into those where it's getting kind of wrapped up nicely. I don't even think there was initially meant to be an exorcism in this film um, and that kind of got ad added in towards the end. So, yeah, it, it really sort of features into that kind of really that big wind-up of the satanic panic leading into the 1990s. But... Um, yeah, I do think this is a really great film and I think that there's some really beautiful work in it, especially those scenes where they're in the asylum and there's that amazing light coming through on the two of them. It's worth seeing. Um, one thing that is a nice little piece of trivia here is that Vladdy loosely based the Gemini killer on the Zodiac killer. Bear with me because it gets a bit complicated here. On the Zodiac <laughs> killer. Um, and who was never caught, though. Who was never caught, yeah. still never caught. Mm. Um, and then in the early 90s, there was a serial killer known as the Gainesville Ripper, who was a serial killer, Danny Rowlings, who uh, was inspired by the Gemini killer from The Exorcist 3. So a lot of <laughs> oh my his... God. It gets better, gets better. Um, <laughs> so a lot of going. his... He, incredibly brutal serial killer and uh, he these awful crimes that happen in the Exorcist 3 these decapitations he would do with college students which his killings inspired Kevin Williamson to write the screenplay for Scream oh my yeah. god <laughs> So this there you go. He it was is. that regional killer that was in the that, yeah oh yeah my, yeah. And wow. he, when he was arrested, his defence was that um, the Gemini killer was telling him what to do. So The Exorcist <laughs> Three was his favourite film, and yeah, was a, a copycat killer from that. And then you know, then Kevin Williamson heard this story, and then he wrote Scream, which is another big horror movie franchise that we have now. Wow. Do you like, do you like Scream Three? 
I don't remember it. I don't either. I kind of <laughs> lost you track of all I've of seen that. It. I know I've seen it. Although I, I hope Glenn Dunks isn't listening to this. Uh, Glenn Dunks has been on this program before and he is a Scream aficionado. So Super fan. Yes. I got to say, Scream 3 is, eh, it's the least of the series, but it's worth seeing for Parker Posey and Courtney Cox's oh, dynamic. Parker, Parker Posey is amazing. Oh, she's in amazing wow. in everything. As an actress playing Gail Weathers and she's hanging out with her studying her. Ah, she's yeah. brilliant. Yeah, she's great. But um so that's a really nice little interesting piece of trivia from the Exorcist <laughs> 3 that which leads into Scream. But um yeah, I, I I really really enjoy the Exorcist 3. Looking at the Exorcist 2 which I did rewatch it this week. Um Emma, I think that maybe you'll have a couple of things to say about this, but it yeah, it just seems like a tighter film when watching Heretic. It just that movie really needs an edit. The scenes just go forever. They go it's for nuts. such a long time. It is nuts, but yes, it's nuts. It's great. It's, it needs it's, more tap dancing. Clearly, yeah, it does. <laughs> it's got Richard Burton. I mean, you know, that's all you need in a film. I, I, basically, the the for me the. I, The Exorcist 2 is terrible, but I love it. I, there's just something about it that in revisiting it, and I haven't watched it for a while, so I won't go into the minutiae of it, but it's it's something that I've just, yeah, I, I found it to be a, a hot, delightful mess. Mm. <laughs> and, uh, and really, it's it's certainly not a masterclass in filmmaking at all. At all. And um, definitely after The Exorcist, because The Exorcist is a perfect movie. I would say yes, it, is. it is a perfect movie. Yeah, it's um, It's got this incredible, simple through line. The performances are incredible. It's paced so beautifully. It dares to be slow at parts, which uh-huh. is something that horror movies will not dare to be in this day and age. Um, so so when, grounded as well. Oh, incredible incredible film. So I remember seeing The Exorcist 3 and I came into it not knowing much about it and just thinking of watching it. And it was a while ago. I'm not sure when it actually was. But it really it blew my mind because of what it was, uh, not because it was uh, – well, because it was an Exorcist um, sequel – um, not because it was of the level or the quality standard of The Exorcist. I don't think you really can put many movies up there yeah, to that, that standard. Yeah, I think that's true. It's like how, how, how do you go on from that? You can't. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But but I was so surprised by how smart and the, the police procedural element to mm-hmm. this, uh, which – and the and the the dialogue was excellent, oh. um, and the rapport between George C. Scott and Ed Flanders' it's character beautiful. as Father Di- it's yeah, they just riff off each other so well. Uh, I could listen to those two all day. Mm-hmm. Oh, talk about George mm-hmm. C. Scott talking about carp in his bath. Exactly. Oh. <laughs> The carp and the bath story. Anyone who watches this, it's a it's a great story. It's just beautifully told, and it's a really it's a really interesting story. <laughs> but um, this film does is a film of kind of two halves, and I, I think the first time I watched it, I was just willing to because I got so excited by what it presented at the beginning, I was willing to go with anything. But then on subsequent watchings, I've I kind of feel disappointed by the second half because. All that the effects aren't what um, the well, well the, the the effects aren't what the standard was made uh, previously. They don't no. live up to that, and um, but also it's kind of yeah, it gets choppy. It, it is, gets it's very very choppy gets, towards yeah. the end. And I think yeah. there are even sequences there where they were meant to be, um, I guess, kind of morphing between two characters that. It, they've just cut it out. So it is actually really yeah. choppy. Just and I, 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 I never thought I would say that the moment that Brad Dourif comes into a film is when I check out. Mm. But the, in this film, unfortunately, the the timing when Brad Dourif comes in as a, a character um, – it's when it sort of starts to fall apart and then it, that's when it's I, – I would have liked to have seen the exorcism stuff continue to play out or the the, the possession or whatever in terms of police procedural. Mm-hmm. Something mm-hmm. like what Larry Cohen did with God Told Me To mm-hmm. or The Demon, depending on what mm-hmm. release you saw, um, which I won't go into any further because everyone should watch that movie. It's one of the most it's brilliant storylines. It's a strange movie. <laughs> <laughs> but what a great reveal, you must admit. It's it's excellent. It's, it's something. It's something. Um, it's something. I, I kind of agree. I think it's, to a certain extent, I think it's a film, I think it's three quarters great. 
Like mm-hmm. I feel like I get everything up to the last 20 minutes. Say I love Dora from the role and because, you know, it adds context to what's been happening. I love how like you don't see much of the, the results of the murders, but when they talk about them, like they're just absurdly violent. Like they're so incredibly evocative and violent. That's and so that's so good, isn't horrifying. it? Horrifying. Yeah. Amazing. And you and you just imagine it. I mean, of course, it's you can't talk about this film without talking about one of the greatest jump scares in the history of cinema, <laughs> which is in the hospital yes. with the shears. Oh um, yeah. Which is brilliant. And I've seen that like aped in other movies not nearly as well mm-hmm. um since because it's so iconic um there's uh i think with this film yeah you see the scars and that's the thing in the end like basically a studio executive told him if we're going to release a goddamn exorcist film there's going to be an exorcism in there like Blatty's vision for this film it wasn't called the exorcist 3 it was called legion after the novel and i feel like if this film came out it was called legion and didn't have the exorcism mm. stuff i think it'd be a lot more well regarded his director's cut is on a Scream Factory Blu-ray in um, released in the US that you can watch. And it's it's very talky. And it's and I don't and I don't know if that's quite finished either. So I think we got two films that are a little bit scarred, but between the two of them, I think they make something super interesting and and, and intriguing. And I think and I think, but I think there's enough mood in this. There's enough mood and enough evocation and terrific performances from Scott and, and Flanders and, and, and Fabio's uh, in it really for Fab- a second too. Fabio gotta... and basketballer Patrick Ewing. And um, Samuel in... L. Jackson. Samuel did Jackson? you notice yep. him? I did. Yeah. In one of the more bizarre dream sequences. <laughs> this film actually has some funny little nods. It's got the, you know, and I'm not going to say, oh, yes, I will. I wrote a book about the fly. It's got some great nods to the fly in this It film. does. Yeah. yeah. Yes, so it does. Lee Richardson who plays um, – uh, I think he's the like kind of head of the university. When they ask him what his favourite film is, The Fly, um, and the the ceiling walk um, with the catatonic patient yes. going across, which is a beautiful image. Like which I've really also quite... seen aped to lesser effect in a certain recent movie. We won't mention. Okay, all right, <laughs> we won't mention that. Uh, but he, so Lee, yeah, Lee Richardson. He played. Um, he was actually in The Fly too. So he actually had a role in a fly movie, not the fly. So I think that's kind of like a little, you know, a little wink, wink as in the fly is the better movie to the fly too, right? (laughs) (laughs) Which is kind of cute. Um, But I I did find also that uh, watching this with my partner, um, uh, my husband, uh, Steve, he said, uh, George and Brad, I need you to give me some more intensity, said no director ever. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> they're very intense you they must they're very yeah Durf, Durf swings for the fences bless him yeah. love him so much so if you want to see The Exorcist 3 it is now available to rent or buy via the Microsoft Store you are listening to Primal Screen on Triple R Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app you're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Emma Westwood, Sally Christie, and myself, Paul Anthony Nelson. You happen to know anything about this Cochrane? Do I know anything? He made Santa Maria what it is today. Dried up a little pile of nothing. Let me tell you something, mister. He brought in every damn one of them factory people from the outside. You think huh. he hired me, local boy? No way. Turn me down flat. You haven't got a dollar you can spare, do you? Halloween 3, Season of the Witch from 1982 was the debut feature film written and directed by Tommy Lee Wallace. All Dr. Dan Chalice, played by Tom Atkins, wants to do is finish his shift at the hospital, pick up his kids for the weekend and get his ex-wife off his back. But when a new patient winds up violently murdered in his ward and the killer sets himself on fire, Dr. Chalice is urged by the dead man's daughter, Ellie, played by Stacey Nelkin, to help her find answers leading them to a small company town home to a little uh, home to little but a uh, secretive Irish American community and the Shamrock Novelties Toy Company <laughs> whose maddeningly catchy ads for their Halloween masks seem to be playing everywhere they go but what are Shamrock Novelties really cooking up and what exactly do they have planned for their big giveaway at 9 p.m. on Halloween night Emma does this mad melange of tech terror folk horror and anti-consumerism and the Halloween series' sole departure from the murders of Michael Myers give a glimpse into what this franchise might have been. 
Yes, I think it's uh, very ballsy that there's no Michael Myers in this. I mean, by the by the time this film had came come out, what year was it? 1982. So you know, I think everyone was itching for more Michael Myers. But um, basically, I, I believe, and Paul, maybe you can confirm this for me. This was the original intention of John Carpenter and Deborah Hill. They wanted it to be. I wondered an about anthology. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wondered if this was. In, meant to be a standalone film to begin with and then they just kind of threw it in or if this was the intention for it. No, I mm. believe that um, that the idea was to have just a whole lot of standalone films around Halloween okay. on mm. Halloween. So Of which the Michael Myers murders would be the first and then yeah, there'd be exactly. something else. Okay. Yeah, exactly. But uh, in the case that when you in with with the studio, when you have a film that does very well, they want to do the same thing again and again and again. So again and again and again and again. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes exactly. audiences want the same thing yeah. again and again and again and again. Exactly. And despite the fact that, that it- this is written by. Um, Tommy Lee Wallace and directed by Tommy Lee Wallace. Well, he did work a lot with um, John Carpenter, so it feels very Carpenter Hill esque. It fits into that whole oeuvre. They uh, produced it as well. Sorry, what was that? They produced. They it as produced well. it too, and the music um, that we were just mm. listening to, which listening to it isolated like that, um, amazing. It, it's like the thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I can hear the thing there. It's like he brings and Halloween, like he brings in so many different um, uh, John Carpenter films into the one into the one soundtrack. But um, uh, this is a, I think this is a sublime film. I just love it. I love the idea of playing with nefarious corporations. I've always really enjoyed that, um, which was starting to really pick up speed at that time. I mean, David Cronenberg did a lot of that and um, through the 70s and kind of uh, established that mantle as, as such, I guess, as, as well as the body horror, um, the body horror side of his work. But, um, you know, you've got th- this a couple of years after this, Larry Cohen did the stuff as well, which was playing on commercialism. And um, but you know, you could kind of argue that something like the Blob, it wasn't as overtly advertorial as such as these pe- films. But right back to the 1950s, you know, it was kind of jumping in on that teen sort of um, you know corporate the how. Um, TV poltergeist was just around at the same time, how TV infects our minds. And so and and this does a really original take on it. And not only that, but it brings in this whole idea of coming into this, you know, strangers in a small town, you know, being the outsiders in a small town and this supposedly congenial, but you know there's a TV, like they in the grab that you actually play, there's the, you know, the cameras, the CCT, CCT, TV that was trained on them, which in 1982 wasn't a thing, mm. you know. Um, now we're kind of a bit more used to it, but it was particularly creepy then. And also this play on their the Irish level, which mm. um, the Silver Shamrocks, this theme song that plays on, which is to the tune of London Bridge is Falling Down, which, um, you know, speaks to people in a, so many different ways, as does... The beautiful tradition of horror movies playing with nursery rhymes and children's songs and, um, you know, how that that ends up being incredibly creepy and eerie. Um, but I, I feel like this film is almost like the Irish comeuppance, you know, they, they're kind of – they're being shown as the – the, the, they're the brunt of jokes constantly, the Irish culture, and in this there's this evil mastermind who maybe he, he – it happens. Who knows? We don't know. The end's an interesting end, but without giving it away. He's a very good villain in this. Film. He's wonderful. Yeah, He's a wonderful villain. Yeah, I think I think this movie is incredible. I I really really love Halloween three. I think it's a really intelligent film, and um, like you were saying, Emma, it covers things like surveillance, which we hadn't really seen a lot of. Artificial intelligence. We've got media brainwashing in there. Consumerism. Uh, so yeah, it covers a whole a whole big huge scope of things. But the one that well, two things that I love about this film the most is definitely the soundtrack. My um, my husband is a big fan of the soundtrack, and I think I'm a more familiar with the soundtrack than I am with the film because he listens to it really <laughs> frequently and it's incredible. But also the cinematography in this film is, I think, really spectacular. There's 
one shot where a, a whole group of kids are going trick-or-treating up a hill and we see this big sort of panoramic scope, which is so breathtakingly beautiful. Mm. It's, yeah, and then there's some other moments in this film which remind me of like a Kubrick film um, towards the end when we're in the factory and we see these white lab coats against this sort of harsh grey background and, you know, this sort of white machinery. And it, it's really breathtaking mm. and I think that um, because there is no Michael Myers in this film, people overlook it a lot. But I think that's a real shame because there is a lot to love about this movie. Yeah, I think, yeah, that cinematography, the soundtrack to it as well. And, yeah, it is it is a really intelligent horror film that gets overlooked as being sort of the black sheep in a Halloween franchise. And I think that, yeah, you're missing out if you're not giving this one a go because it's pretty uh, great. <laughs> and I, I don't know if it's – um. This film's kind of you're damned if you do or if you're damned if you don't because if it wasn't attached to the Halloween mm. franchise, would people have seen it? Mm. You know, it, it could easily be a standalone film. It is a standalone film, but, yeah, would people have sort of given it the light of day if it didn't have Halloween 3 attached to it and if it was even, just called Season even, of the Witch? Even Season of the Witch, though, I find that a really weird title for it. Mm. And mm. possibly I don't think it's titled very well. Um Interestingly, we're doing a George Romero film next, and he did a, a film called Season of the Witch as well, which um, was more accurately. Which titled. was more accurately <laughs> the title, but yeah, you just something to add. I know that um, there's and we're doing film. All these films are really readily available streaming, and the streaming releases are beautiful of this at the moment because I watched it on Saturday, the twenty fourth. Oh, yes. Eight more days till Halloween, Halloween, Halloween. Appropriately. But before that, I was, and I nearly settled down to watch my Halloween box set, which I got quite a long time ago. And this release that I saw was, or the streaming version I saw was far superior quality. So wow. I picked up on all that beauty that you were talking about, Sally, that I didn't really get. I, I think that a lot of people, um, like I didn't get it previously, I think a lot of people um, can be a bit enamoured with the kind of the VHS yes. grainy, but but to be totally honest, if you see these films, mm. a beautiful master copy. Because, yeah, I watched this when I rewatched it last week. I watched it on the Stan, on Stan. Mm-hmm. Um, not the Stan. Um, <laughs> They don't watch the Netflix. The Netflix. Um, And, yeah, I I was really blown. I I didn't remember how incredibly beautiful this film was, Um, probably because I had seen, you know, not sort of remastered copies or anything like that, and it is. It's gorgeous. Well, it's Dean Cundy who shot Mm. Halloween 1 and 2. Yes, Um, yes. Knows his way around a camera lens. Yeah, there's a couple of things I'll just say quickly about this film. I I agree with everything you're saying. I think it's a film that reveals itself because I think it's, in some ways, it's it's so aggressively weird (laughs) that a lot of people kind of go in and go, what the hell is this, particularly, you know, expecting what we know is Halloween. But I think the more you I think on the second and third viewing, it really reveals itself. Like the anti-consumerism thing didn't really hit me until the second or third time I'd seen it. I was mm-hmm. like, oh, of course. Mm-hmm. Like getting the kids to you know, ravenous for these masks and glued to the television and watching. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, my God. Like it's, yeah, it's um, very clever. Two things. It's a co-writer. I don't know if he's actually credited on the film. I don't think he is. But he was uncredited is Nigel Neal who is a bit of a oh, really? folk, yeah, who's a bit of a folk horror sensei. <gasps> of, the, the guy that wrote the Quatermass experiment stuff, and the yeah. stone tape and, and all this sort of mm. stuff. So it's interesting that they brought him in to possibly, you know, cover off the kind of stone, you know, the, 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 uh, the Thank you for reminding scheme. me of that because that's where, would you consider this film a folk horror film? It I has it all the elements. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Without yeah, being I, overt, it yeah. is actually you could say that its grounding, its background is in is a folk horror film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's tech horror and folk horror um, mashup. Mm-hmm. Mm, and yeah, I love that about it. Um, also, can we just pour one out for the great Tom Atkins? I oh, love this guy. Bloody it, great! <laughs> it's <laughs> like someone cast you. Dad as an action hero. Lee yeah. Majors. Yeah. He's, <laughs> he's got, got that- real or he's got real dad energy. Like even though he's <laughs> slightly inappropriate with some of the women in the film, it all seems like they have this long boat baked in dynamic where 
like they both know how far to go. Like yeah, all the- it's, it's really interesting that rapport that he has with the women's film because yeah, I definitely picked up on that with rewatching it. I was like, what's their history? I want to yeah. know because it's there. Yeah. It's and it's with the nurse. It's with yes. the older nurse. It's yeah. with the scientist. That's yeah. look the forensic scientist. Like it's yep. with all of them. It's like he's clearly had a past. They all they all love him. Not only that, but um, the actress who plays um, his uh, his wife in ex wife in the film is actually his his um is. Tommy Lee Wallace's um, wife in real life. So oh, wow. I think that's really interesting. Is that Nancy Kyes? Yeah, 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 exactly. Oh, wow. I did not know. That's great. <laughs> um, and also the fact that Halloween appears on a television commercial yes. in this film. Yes. The Halloween, yeah, the self-referential stuff is really great. Love it. But, yeah, I agree. So I think this should have been Halloween 2 and I think it should have set the tone for it. I think it came one film too late, but it's great stuff. It's so and, – and, oh, and the and the last thing, the kill, the like the when the scheme is revealed, what they're going to do, that is one of the most upsetting things I've ever seen in a film. <sighs> yes. With mm. the kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> Let's nah. leave that open for the people who haven't seen it. And everyone really should see this film. I think, like like Sally was saying, it, it kind of – it's um, damned if you do, damned if you don't, being um, labelled with Halloween and it kind of got buried. So mm. it's excellent. So dig it up. Halloween 3 Season of the Witch is now streaming in pristine HD on Stan and is available to rent or buy via Amazon Video. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Sally Christie, Emma Westwood, and myself, Paul Anthony Nelson. Who's being subjected to what, Fisher? You've lost one man. Yeah, right. We've lost five. Yeah. Where does it say we got to keep those dumb fucks next door to where we sleep? Where does it say we should do any one thing but shoot the mothers in the head? We don't have enough ammunition, Captain, to shoot them all in the head. Time to have done that would have been at the beginning. Day of the Dead from 1985 was the ninth feature film directed by George A. Romero and the third in his series of Blank of the Dead zombie movies. Nine years in real-world time after the events of Dawn of the Dead, it's estimated that The Walking Dead, as you heard, now outnumbered the living 400,000 to one, with the rush for a cure vying neck and neck for a race to figure out how to live in this new normal. Sound familiar? (laughs) Deep beneath the earth in an abandoned mine, a small and rapidly diminishing team of scientists and soldiers are caught in an extremely uneasy alliance as the scientists' research is torn by divergent aims while the trigger-happy military men wonder how long they have to watch their comrades die to achieve aims that even those in charge can't agree on. And just who is in charge anyway? Is it the jittery Dr. Logan, Richard Liberty, convinced that we can teach old zombies new tricks? Or is it the bombastic Captain Rhodes, played by Joe Pilato, who's had a gut full of the whole thing and is itching to pull the plug on the whole operation? In the middle of all this testosterone, trying to hold it all together with less and less success, is determined, strong-willed scientist Sarah Laurie Cardill. But with everyone at their wits' end and a seemingly inexhaustible horde of the hungry undead, both next door and above, she may not live long enough to find out. Sally, did Romero's vision of a group of volatile personalities going crazy in lockdown hit a bit close to home this time around? (laughs) Yeah, this is really interesting watching um, Day of the Dead in our COVID times. Um, I feel a little bit under pressure talking about this movie. It's my husband's favourite movie in the whole world. Oh, wow. (laughs) More than Dawn. Yes. I always thought it was, oh, wow, yes, this is, that's awesome. Yep. So, um, yeah, it's the first time that I've watched it since COVID has hit and it was definitely a different experience. Um, I think all of the Romero's trilogy, Night and Dawn and Day, are all masterpieces. I love them all. I think they're all spectacular films. Um, I think it's interesting what he's done with... This one, I think a lot of the time people criticise this film for being really over the top and I really enjoy that about this film. And especially with the leads, if we're thinking about Sarah compared to Barbara in Night Living Dead, who is one of the most over-the-top characters ever. She's completely hysterical, the whole whole film. Um, Yeah, I I, I like this kind of – she's not calm, but compared to Barbara, she's calm. But I like I like the character of Sarah as this really strong female female lead that he's got. And, um, you know, Romero's, I guess, kind of 
known for having these progressive lead roles in his um, films. So that's one thing that I love about this and there's a lot to love about this film and I guess another thing that is interesting sort of looking at it in, you know, different perspective that we have now is the scientific research and how these things are sometimes paced and people can't see the value in this mm. instantly um, and, you know, wanting that instant gratification with something and why is something taking so long when I, I need to know this right now, I need to know this right now and, yeah, looking at why pacing is important and why resources are important into this sort of scientific research that's happening in Day of the Dead. Um, so, yeah, a very, very different viewing this time compared to every other time I've seen this film. And it is a spectacular film. Like I said, I think all his entire trilogy, they're all masterpieces. Love them all. That's a mm. great observation, actually, Sally. Yeah. Um, I found that I really appreciated um, the little kind of um, – uh, tropical oasis they created yes. in the caravan. I've always compared myself to those guys. Like when COVID yeah. started with lockdown, it's like this is Pez and like, I. This me. is what we do. Yeah, yeah. And I really appreciated it. I was like, and and I could feel what they were trying to. Uh, you know, you, you intellectually, you can you know you can always. Um, understand what they're on about. But once you've been through extended lockdowns, it seems to be so much more me meaningful. Mm -hmm. um, also, this film really is, I think, really progressive. I, there's a lot dumped on older films because of, you know, the pale, stale, male, white male sort of thing. But this is really ticks off the diversity card. I, I think that too. And I rewatching this, it was looking at this group of misfits versus this group of white alpha males. Yeah. And that's, that's sort of really clear and I think it does really tick off that diversity card. I, Although, I interestingly, mm. one of the group of white alpha males is not white and not an alpha male and he's continually cracking under the strain. Mm. Oh, yes, yes, mm. yes. Which, which he further is, supports your yeah. point. It's like he's in this system and doesn't belong. Mm -hmm. Like yep. he's not – he's constantly called a racial slur. He's constantly thrown under mm – -hmm. and so it's interesting. Yeah, I think that further supports your point. So yeah, like, yeah, and he is the bridge, you know. He's the one that mm. – he's the bridge that is cracking under pressure from the – between the scientists and the, the military personnel. Yeah. What I really – I find this film seems to get – Dumped on when I say because it's just as a trilogy, everyone will well not everyone, but a lot of people I talk to will say, "Ah, oh, yeah, Day of the Dead, yeah, it's not as good as the others." I I don't feel that. Mm. I've always really loved this film, uh, and I think that maybe it suffered from someone people just trying to rank a trilogy. You know, what's the best one? What's I mean, you, Night of the Living Dead. You, you know, it it sits on its own. Um, it's stylistically incredibly different to these two films. So, um, or Dawn and Day. So Dawn and Day are always going to get you know com compared to each other, basically. But what I like about this is in, in terms of the, being a threequel <laughs> or the third film, it actually comes in quite late in the narrative with everything and there's a lot of stuff that goes on, big important stuff that usually a film would show or you feel like a screenwriter would come in earlier and write about that. Um, but instead, we only hear about it in retrospect. Like they talk about people, like a certain event where um, the soldier, uh, uh, someone who's leading the military, the, the military group, is killed and has allowed that character played by Joseph Pilato to take over. And um, Miguel, who's our bridging character, um, who suffers a lot in this film. Uh, has been having a relationship with Sarah, but we never see yeah. that relationship. Mm. Yeah, I think that's really interesting as well. Well, we, we mm. see them relate to each other, but we don't see them relate on the same pa page mm. or show it's any. It's broken down already. It's all mm. broken down. And I think it's really ballsy the way that it comes in like that. Uh, and it works. It works beautifully. Uh, it's, it's very effective. It's super interesting because I think on your point, Em, all of these films are so different. I think this is night and day from night and day from dawn. Like I think mm. dawn is like a comic book. Dawn and day. Yeah. <laughs> is this like dawn and day. This is like dawn is a comic book. This is so much more gritty and so much more angry and so much more paranoid and so much more like it's, and they're all sort of commenting on different things. I agree. So they're all masterpieces. 
the the interesting thing with this film, and I don't know whether the, some of the stuff we're talking about is part of this, but Romero originally envisioned this on a much larger larger canvas, mm. and then lost half of his budget mm. um, going into the shoot, and suddenly had to cut it right down, which is why we essentially now have a bottle episode, um, which is all set in this in this abandoned facility, which I think is great. I always. I think this is another film that benefits from repeat viewings because the first mm. time I had that same, you know, tired reaction of like, oh, it's not as good as the others. It's all talking and no, no, no. Even though the gore amps up to a point oh, where it's the, insane. It's almost like Savini's masterpiece it is. in terms of it's yeah. the drawn and quartered by zombies patented oh, Tom Savini yep. special effect. Yep. <laughs> Astonishing. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you've got that, you know, the gore goes crazy. It's talky and then the gore is just so much more off the hook. But I just feel like if Quentin Tarantino wrote a zombie movie, I feel like it would be like this. Yeah, like, you're right. Yeah. It would. Yeah. It's also it the, sort of- it's the Frankenstein film too. Mm. So, you know, mm. you've got to remember we've got – it's the first yes. time we have an actual – we have a mass of zombie characters, but it's the first time we actually get close to a zombie character yeah. and they flesh out, pardon the pun, the zombie character. And, and it's the first time we really feel sorry for them. Mm. That, yeah. the, the two, like they're almost like a couple that get dragged in and chained up first off and they turn the lights off and they seem really scared and, and it's the first time we begin to get this sympathy for the zombies, mm-hmm. uh, which Romero brings into later films this is yeah this is brilliant um so day of the dead is now streaming on netflix amazon prime binge foxtel now and shutter and is available to rent or buy via youtube apple tv itunes and google play it's everywhere you're listening to primal screen on triple r triple r you've been listening to primal screen on triple r with sally christie emma westwood and myself paul anthony nelson we reviewed The Exorcist 3, now available to rent or buy at the Microsoft Store. Halloween season, Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, now streaming on Stan and available to rent or buy via Amazon Video. And George A. Romero's Day of the Dead, now streaming on Netflix, Amazon, Binge, Shudder, and available to rent or buy on YouTube, Apple, iTunes, and Google Play. You can listen back to the show within an hour, uh, within half an hour rather, on Triple R on Demand, or check out the songs we played on the Primal Screen page at rrr.org.au right now. You can also subscribe to the Primal Screen podcast via iTunes or wherever else you find your favorite podcasts. Join Flick next week for more fun as she and her guest co hosts talk documentaries. Also, check out Numi Rapace bonding a little too closely with her fur baby in Valdemar Johansson's Lamb. And Todd Haynes's maiden voyage into documentary, looking at one of the world's most influential rock bands, The Velvet Underground. A huge thank you to Morty Osborne for editing the Primal Screen podcast. Killer Carl Chapman for panelling and providing producing assistance. Thanks for listening to Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. 